Hey, deserving listeners. Today, I'm going to present the interview in which I talked with Irvin Yalom. But before we get to that, I just want to talk a little bit about him for those of you who don't know who he is. The first thing I'll say is that every field has its own heroes. For actors, many might say that Laurence Olivier or Meryl Streep is their favorite actor, you know, an, an actor that they really look up to. For people interested in astronomy, it might be Einstein or Hubble or Carl Sagan or something. For painters, it might be Pablo Picasso or Van Gogh or Monet or something. Well, for therapists, perhaps the most revered therapist living today is Irvin Yalom. I've been asking around because I consider Irvin Yalom to be the most revered therapist who is still living today. I asked around if they agreed with me, and everyone agreed with me. Uh, everyone, you know, and really, there's nobody who even comes to in a close second. So, for people in the field, especially people who have been around a while, they understand the importance of Irvin Yalom and the um, how much of a big deal it is for me to talk to him. For others, they're like they, you know, you might not have ever heard of him. I was actually talking with a young person about my field, and I was I was trying to convince them about how special it was that I was talking with Irvin Yalom, and I was like, you know, he's like he's like Sigmund Freud. He's he's huge, and the young person was like, who? And I said Sigmund Freud, and he's like, uh, I don't think I know who that is. So, <laughs> um, I always have to just be aware that. Uh, in our field, we know of a lot of names, and we have our own heroes and our own famous people. And outside our field, they might not have any idea what we're talking about. But anyway, my life with Irvin Yalom began when I entered graduate school in 1995. And in my very first class, they assigned they only assigned us a few books. And one of the books that they assigned us to read was Love's Executioner. This book was amazing to read in my first quarter when I decided to become a therapist and go to graduate school. It, I had a very, and, and, I, and people still are assigned this book, I had a very um, rudimentary and false understanding of what a therapist was. I thought, when I first started out, I thought therapists were supposed to be gods, like they never had any countertransference, they never had any vulnerabilities, they were tough. They always knew what was happening. And when I read Love's Executioner, it really disabused me of that assumption. Because Irvin Yalom, in Love's Executioner, Irvin Yalom writes, I think it's about 10 chapters. Each chapter is on a different client that he worked with. And he goes into detail about how he worked with those people. And and he talks about his own process. He talks about his own failures and his own insecurities and his own anger towards his clients. And he, he just speaks with complete humility and complete self-disclosure. And for me to read this as a 24-year-old entering the field was completely mind-altering. I went from thinking that therapists, you know, the greats were supposed to be these uh, flawless, you know, self-assured, clinicians to realizing that therapists were human beings who muddled their way through things. And really, to be a good therapist, you needed to fully acknowledge how how muddling your process is and how squishy therapy is and how 
we have insecurities and inadequacies that uh, plague us throughout our life, and that if you don't really face those head on, it um, then you might actually be in trouble. Not only he- head on, but actually tell other people about it. Not only tell other people about it, but write a book and and publish it for everyone in the world to read. It was just amazing to read someone of his renown talking so frankly about his own problems and to to see also the beauty of his therapy when he would work with people. The opening line in Love's Executioner is, I do not like to work with patients who are in love. Perhaps it is because of envy. (laughs) I mean, just in that first opening line, you realize what this book's about. I don't like to work with patients who are in love. Maybe it's because I'm jealous of them. <laughs> you know, it's just like to to see that that just, you know, just written out there for everyone to to judge really gave me permission to pursue that that way of being as a therapist to be real and to not shy away from my own problems. In this way he was a true role model. Uh, Bob Gettle, he's been on the podcast sometimes and he wrote he read his book early in the 90s love's executioner and fell in love with him and wrote him a letter and Irvin Yalom actually wrote him back and uh Bob actually asked him you know where should I go to graduate school and so i feel like a lot of people have a very feel like they have a very personal relationship or really want to reach out to Irvin Yalom because of the way that he writes he writes in such a real way that you really feel like you could hang out with the guy <laughs> and he you know he wouldn't um intimidate you if that makes any sense since graduate school and maybe during graduate school in the last 20 something years i've read several of his books uh, i'm looking at my bookshelf right now i can see the gift of therapy which is a wonderful book uh, also he's you know really known for his group therapy text He's actually uh, publishing the sixth edition of it pretty soon. If you ever take a class on group therapy, in all likelihood, Yalom's uh, very large Bible on group therapy is an assigned text. Also, in uh, researching and um, writing about grief, I really have read his book called Staring at the Sun, which is a book about death and grief and all that kind of stuff. And there's there's several books that, that I've read. And, and he's also cited in many books, particularly when humanistic therapy is, is mentioned. I saw his movie. He, he writes fiction. And one of his fiction books was adapted into a movie called When Nietzsche Wept. He, he's also, some people have made a documentary about him called Yalom's Cure, uh, which I've also seen. I've always just loved his attitude. He he really comes across as the ideal therapist. He's extremely helpful. He really is dedicated to his clients. He's in it he's 87, 86 right now and he still sees clients and he still teaches. Um I really look up to him and I really hope to have a career uh, that is 1% of what he's had. So he's he's really helpful and he's really dedicated to his clients. He's really dedicated to helping therapists. And he's also extremely humble, which is a very wonderful combination. (laughs) He's super famous, very able, very helpful, and very humble and down to earth and prolific. He's written several books, like 30 books or something, and he's constantly evolving. Um, He 
at first hated online therapy and then recently started to come around on online therapy, which I just have to say is, you know, it, that's something to say about any therapist, let alone uh, someone of his age, not to be ageist, but, but you know, I, I would just take a guess and say that m- most therapists in their 80s are not uh, supportive of online therapy. I'm just, just a guess. I don't know. But anyway, my point is, is that he's been constantly evolving. He's, um, you know, just always searching, trying to learn, always reaching out to other people, trying to, you know, connect, make up, making all those things. Okay. So, so I've always known about him and I've always looked up to him and I assign his readings and blah, blah, blah. Well, a, a couple months ago, a patron emailed me and said that I should talk with Irvin Yalom. In fact, I should look up that email because I should credit that person. Oh, it was Serenity. Serenity emailed me. She came to our live event in January 2018, met her in person. I think she's from California, if I'm not mistaken. And she said that I should email Yalom and have him on the podcast. And I emailed her back and I said, oh, you know, he would never be on my stupid podcast. There's no point in bothering him with an email. I, I, don't even, I don't even know if he has a public email. And Serenity emailed me back, and she's like, no, no, you should give it a try, you know, please. And I, I was like, uh, okay, fine. So I emailed him thinking there's no way he's going to email you back. And lo and behold, he emailed me back. And I said, oh, and he's like, well, what do you want? And I was like, well, I have this podcast, blah, blah, blah. You can check us out online. Would you like to come on the podcast? I don't know. And he was like, sure, let's make a date. And I was like, OMG, I can't believe this is happening. (laughs) Not only am I going to get him on the podcast, but I, Kirk, get to interact with him over Skype. This is incredible. I can't believe this. And I was so nervous. Uh, The day of, I actually, actually, (laughs) this is a little bit of... Uh, too much information, but I don't usually wear uh, deodorant because I don't actually have body odor. <laughs> I don't know how to tell people that. With, I, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying it's just a thing. I don't know if it's a Japanese thing or what, but I, I, I don't. But but there are times when I actually will sweat in my armpits and maybe get a little stinky, and that's when I get nervous. And so I thought for sure today, you know, when I was get, before I was going to interview Irvin Yalom, uh, it was it was a pit stick situation. Let's just put it that way. And I told everyone about it, and I found that there were two different kinds of reactions. That you know, there are people like I went to a store and bought his his memoir because I, I I thought he might want to talk about it because he that's his latest book. And I told the cashier I was like, I get to interview him soon, and and the cashier was like, Oh, okay, big deal. And uh, and telling other people, they're like, who's Irving Yalom? But then I would tell other therapists, people in the field, particularly uh, people my age, around my age and older, and they would they would flip out. People were like, oh, my God, you are going to talk to Irving Yalom? That's crazy. How did that happen? I mean, everyone's just freaking out, you know, and in the way that I was freaking out. So it felt good to be validated, you know, in terms of my pit stick situation. I and 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 I just had so many questions and I, I got nervous and I thought, man, I, I don't want to bother him and I, I want I have so many like really deep questions. What if he doesn't like my stupid questions and and I had a hard time sleeping the night before and and, and it was it was it was uh, it was a rough night. But um, I ended up uh, it ended up going well. I'm going to play it soon. Um, and in talking with him, I just want to give a little preamble. So 
I loved his humility and the, and you might not get a sense from the conversation uh, as much as I did because when I was talking with him, we were doing it over Zoom and video, and so we could see each other's faces, right? And so it it felt like I was right there with him, and I really got a sense for his humanness and his humility. There were some questions I would ask him, and he's just like, oh, you know, I, I don't know if I know anything about that. Or I don't think I know the answer to that. And I found that to be very refreshing. You know, there's a temptation when you're an expert to think like you know everything about everything. And I definitely got the sense that Yalom did not believe that about himself. I definitely got the sense that he didn't mind answering questions, but he also didn't really think of himself as like this all-knowing creature. In his in his memoir called Becoming Myself, which I highly recommend you go out and read, I actually read it in a day. It was so interesting to me. If you're especially if you're a therapist, there's so many interesting things in it, particularly if you like Yalom. So Becoming Myself, I think it's about $25, $30 on Amazon. You could also go to your local bookstore, which is what I did. Third place book. Shout out to Lake Forest Park. Um, and in his book, he one of his chapters, he talks about how people idealize him. And he talks about how it's a strange thing that every field has people that we look up to and we idealize. You know, it's one thing to look up to someone, which I think he says is fine, but it's another thing to idealize someone and to to think that someone is is better than any human has ever been. And he he gets that vibe from people, and he talks about that, and he talks about how that that's not um, consistent with who he is. And in that way, I thought that after talking with him over the internet that he might be able to solve all my problems and you might be able to hear as I'm talking with him you might be able to hear me asking him to solve my problems <laughs> I, have, I have some very deep personal questions that are that are really just me asking him to help me and I debated as to whether or not I would even uh, post this interview because I was like man this this kind of sounds like a therapy session in some ways uh, not all the time. There's there's definitely, um, you know, sort of fresh air, Terry Gross questions that I'm asking. But there's also very personal questions that I'm asking him. And, um, and I had idealized him to the point where I thought after talking with him for 25 minutes over the internet that all my problems would go away afterwards. And that didn't happen. <laughs> so after talking with him, I had to really reconcile with myself that... I was doing what he talked about in his memoir, which is I thought he was some sort of a god, and that by touching God, I would somehow be healed. And of course, that's silly. So let's go to that interview right now. So Dr. Yalom, while reading your memoir, I really liked reading about your love of gambling. You wrote about (laughs) how you gambled at school as a child and you wrote about how recently you miss being able to play cards with your friends. And you also wrote about how your wife accommodates you by making occasional little bets with you about, you know, you said you're putting on a tie and your wife was telling you to put on a tie because you're going to a, an event of some kind. And you right. were saying, well, I don't need to write a, wear a tie. And, she, and, then you said, oh, and then you said, okay, fine, I'll wear a tie. But I'll bet you $20 that no one else at this event is going to be wearing a tie. And I also love gambling and playing cards and, and betting and stuff. In fact, my friend Bob, who's also a therapist, he's been on the podcast before, 
he loves to gamble and play cards. And we used to play cards late into every, you know, every night or I don't know, a couple times a week, we'd play cards till the early morning with our friends. And, and he's a therapist too. You're a therapist. I'm a therapist. So do you think there's some connection between being a therapist and gambling? Oh, being a therapist and gambling. Uh, well, I don't know. From my own experience, so I've been to two or three or four poker games, so I'm generally the only only therapist there. Oh. Well, when I was in Hawaii, I was in the Army, and there was a psychiatrist poker game there, a civilian psychiatrist. So, I, so but but in these the last few games I've been to, I, I haven't I haven't seen any other psychiatrists playing there. <laughs> so I don't think I can answer that question. Do you think that there's a connection between your work, interest in psychiatry and psychology, and your interest in gambling at all? Like trying to read people? I don't think so. The gambling was uh, very early in my life. I don't know how I picked it up, but uh, there was a, where I lived as a kid, there was a lot of gambling people. Groups of kids were shooting crap at the corner and things like that. So I, I and uh, a lot of the customers in my father's store were doing a lot of talking about the horse races. And then there was something that I mentioned uh, in the memoir was the, the numbers uh, yeah. game. There was a number every day. And every the whole neighborhood was betting on it. Somehow you could bet as little as a dime. Your odds were 600 to 1 to get this three-digit number correct. And the number was, was uh, there was a formula where it was chosen from one of the horse races at Hialeah. So it really couldn't be fixed. And the, um, the sponsors of it were doing fine because the odds really are 1,000 to 1 or 999 to 1. Uh, and they were giving 600 to 1 odds. You could bet a dime and win sixty dollars. So um, yeah, everyone was happy about that. But it was it was pretty rampant in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Yeah, and didn't you run a numbers game of some kind when you were in school? Is, do I remember reading that? Oh, it was a little bit of cash for yourself. It was a numbers game. It was a uh, wasn't uh, it based on baseball? Like like yeah, it's on baseball. You pick any three players and uh, and you bet that they won't get six hits between the three of them. Right. And you get very good odds, something like 15 to 1. Somewhere when I was uh, in junior high reading baseball papers, I saw someone was saying, saying that the odds were really over 20 to 1. So I would give 15 to 1. And uh, usually came out ahead. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So I want to talk with you about your theory of change. In your memoir, you write about your appreciation for Freud you also write about your appreciation for Viktor Frankl and Rollo May and existentialism in general. And in theory books, you're often described as an existential humanistic therapist, but you also talk about Freud and about the unconscious. So I was wondering if you were an integrationist of some sort. So how would you describe your theory of change? Integration. Well, I, I try to take what I can from all the best minds who have done this that seems to make sense when I see patients. So, yes, I, I drew a lot from Freud, and I, I do work with unconscious, and I do work with some of his notions of uh, dream theory. And, but some of his notions I, I don't really agree with, especially the, the emphasis on transference and the idea that you have to be a blank screen so that the patient will, would transfer certain things onto you, dating back from the figures in their early life. Uh, that that's too big a price to pay for not being able to relate to people in a real genuine empathic way. 
So I, I pull what I can from the others. I don't think of myself as uh, as starting a certain kind of school. There's so many of them out there. You know, uh, I, I try to uh, to just work with each patient in uh, somewhat different way, depending on what I, I see in front of me. Um, but I, I, you know, I, the, the the closest thing that I, is really always there for me is the, is the old Carl Rogers ideas about uh the, the fact that the it's really the relationship that heals and that the the quality of the relationship especially uh what he spoke of as uh accurate empathy and genuineness and positive unconditional regard that's always there for me those those three things are always present in my work with patients and i think that was a a major contribution to our field. What do you think about people who say today certain schools in our in our field who claim that there's no evidence for humanistic therapy or there's no evidence for psychodynamic or interpersonal therapies? Well, I, I don't think I think that's just frankly untrue. Uh, I, I think um, you know there are there are really thousands of doctorates written on just those Carl Rogers uh, triad of therapist factors, uh, and they were heavily, heavily documented. David Elkins uh, wrote a a book just uh, last year for the American American Psychological Association where he looked at all the evidence of that. So that's uh, propaganda. Why do you think they have that propaganda? I have no idea. Yeah. In your memoir, you write about death, you, you write about the death of your parents. You write about how your sister actually died while you were writing the memoir. Yeah. You dedicated the book to your parents, to the memory of your parents and your sister. You also write about Rollo May and how you were sitting by him and touching his shoulder when he died. You also write about what you think about your own death mm-hmm. and how existential therapy involves an acknowledgement of our death. I'm one of those people who thinks about their death several times a day. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And when I tell other people about this, they simply say that I'm suffering from anxiety or that I'm just being morbid or there's something kind of wrong with me. Just stop thinking about it kind of a thing. So my question for you is this. Why do you think some people like me think about their death while others don't seem to think about it at all? Is there something wrong with me? Maybe it's got to do with the, the sense that you're, or I'll say the sense that one, one isn't living the way they want to be living. Uh, they're building up regrets, too many regrets in their life. Their life isn't the kind of life they, 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 they wanted to. I think the main thing is, in this regard, is to be able to uh, think of yourself as living without regrets. And as I get older, sure, I'm thinking about death more than I ever have, but I, I can't see how that cannot be the case. But I'm, I'm getting reminders of it all the time. Friends are dying. Uh, I learned uh, earlier uh, today that a cousin, a distant cousin of mine, had died. It's it's always with me, and uh, and one is is thinking about that. Health is declining. I can see signs of senility coming coming into my life. So, yes, but uh, thinking of it and being obsessed with it as a as a younger person, that's that's worth a therapeutic excursion and, and examination of that. And I have, for sure. And I've devoured as much as I can in terms of literature and in my own therapy about it, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't characterize it so much as anxiety. It's just that 
I think from an early age, I just realized that all of our time here is limited. And if there's an afterlife or not on this plane of existence, our time's limited. And so I don't know, it just sort of pops into my head a lot. And I've talked with other people who have a similar kind of experience. I would say one out of a hundred times, it terrifies me. But really, most of the other times, it's just like, oh, just, just kind of, I just see it, you know, the way that I see people and trees and, you know, the world. It's just like, oh, death, you know, it's, it's around and it's, it's in the future and interesting. You know, it's, it's kind of just a topic of interest to me. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I, I think that was partly in my mind when I uh, wrote that book and, and chose the title of Staring at the Sun. Yeah. Uh, that was that was taken from a from an aphorism. There are two things we shouldn't stare directly at at the, at the sun and at death. And I'm writing that book in a sense to refute that aphorism. That you know, that I, I do think we need to uh, be able to stare at death. It's there. Uh, I don't think we should be in, in denial of it, but not to let it uh, impair the way we we live our lives. It's not a pleasant topic for uh, for a lot of people. People don't talk about it very much. When I started to write that that large volume on existential psychotherapy, and I knew that most of that would be looking at, at death, and I, I I wanted to to talk to my patients about that. See, they thought I really didn't I didn't know how to do it. Like I didn't know how to conduct that kind of interview, and that's the reason I started working with patients who were dying of of an illness, dying of cancer. For about ten years, I worked with. Uh, patients who had uh, terminal cancer uh, as a way really of, of informing myself about death and helping me to really be able to, to write a, a decent book about it. Yeah, I've always wanted to do that. that. I've had a hard time getting my career to go in that direction, but I, uh, and I might, I guess, in the future at some point. So just a final question about this, because it really does, I really am curious what you think about it. A lot of people, when I talk to them about this, they're just like, I don't know, why, why do you think about it? And when I see them, I think, well, why don't you think about it? I'm not saying you should be like me and think about it several times a day, but it seems like they don't think about it ever. They know they're going to die intellectually. They're not irrational or delusional, but it's just like not a concern. And to me, it just seems like such a part of our reality. I'm of two minds about it. Either they're geniuses and they figured out something that I haven't, which is totally possible, or they're in denial. And so I can't figure out which one it is. What, What do you think about that? Well, tell me, do you think about death or do you think about dying? There is a difference. I think about annihilation. I think about not existing. Well, you think about not existing. You really think about death then. You think about uh, uh, non-existing. But it's, it's, uh, why would you be concerned or upset about not existing? Because you're not going to be there and know you're not existing. <laughs> yeah. I'll be fine. I'll be, I'll be nothing about it, you know. Yeah. Um, I just am. I, I just, in the same way that Woody Allen worries about it, <laughs> I'm worried about it too. You know, it's just like I've got limited time, and and I do feel like I'm living my life's meaning. I really, because I've again partially motivated by thoughts about death or the knowledge of death when I was young. I f- I really do feel like I could die now and feel like I have done what I could do on this planet, and feel like I've given to society the little bit that I can. And so I'm, I, it's not a matter of that. It's a matter of just like the bummer or the disappointment of not being able to enjoy life, I suppose, you know, being cut off from being able to exist. Yeah, but you won't know you're being cut off by it. No, 
it's always a trigger for me. So I, but you know, especially as I as I get older and uh, I'm reminded of death so often now because of colleagues and friends dying. But mostly, I think if I'm what I, my concern is about dying, not not about not about death, or how one dies. For me, one of the worst things that I can think about is, is dementia. And I, I'm concerned about that, but I seem to have passed the age where if I could get any significant senile, I mean, significant dementia like Alzheimer's, I would have gotten it now. How one has to live towards the end of their life. Or I think about losing the people that are close to me, especially my wife. But uh, I, I, the idea of death, of not existing, doesn't plague me or frighten me uh, at all. But you do think about the aging and dying. Yeah, the universe is going to not exist after a while. It has a, I've been watching some uh, uh, series of lectures from the, uh, from the about the Hubble telescope, and there's a great courses course on that. And the, the age of the sun is very dated, and you know all the all the dead suns that are floating around in the universe are there. That knows what kind of planets might have once been circling them. It's obviously this is uh, is all all limited. Everything's going to end, but we're not going to be there when it happens. Yeah, I think about that too, and that provides some comfort in that it's like, well, the whole universe will come to an end at some point in all likelihood. (laughs) There won't be anything to experience after that point anyway. And so... It makes sense to really plunge yourself into, you know, into life. Yeah, which is what I try to do. I, you know, I I really do, it really does affect me, you know. So I want to get to my last couple questions. Sure. What advice do you have, you know, like I was telling you earlier, we have a lot of young therapists who are listeners to this podcast. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for young therapists of today? Oh, that's so general. Yeah. <laughs> Say more about the question. We live in a time when our field is changing, our society is changing. There's a movement away, in my opinion, from humanistic psychotherapies and interpersonal psychotherapies towards more medicalized cognitive behavioral therapy techniques and brief therapies and this kind of thing. And although I absolutely appreciate those theories, I find that they can be somewhat limiting in terms of uh, application to some clients. So I guess that's one question I have in terms of, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't like the way uh, the, the field is, is changing in, in many ways. Um, but I, I, you know, I feel I can offer a lot to almost every patient I see or that contacts me. Obviously, there's some patients who are, who are in severe psychosis that I really can't deal with or nor, nor can anyone at this point. But I feel I can offer uh, patients a great deal from working with them and and um, the idea of things being extremely uh, mechanized, or we're doing CBT, and this to, to me is, is is just not at all the therapy that I, I have much interest in. If I enter into the lives deeply of, of a number of people, I, I feel I, I can help almost anyone that, that comes to me for help, offer them something. I empathic. I try to see what what they need from me and try to try to give it to them. And what's more, it's a it's an extremely a rewarding way for me to live. It's a great privilege to be invited into the infant life of, of so many people and do what I can to be helpful to them. And I, I I know about the conflicts that a lot of younger people come in because but all that's really being driven 
of course, my financial issues and by the insurance companies and uh, trying to do something as rapidly as possible. But I, I'm just offering something else entirely. And I don't think that's the only way to get help. I mean, I, I've been interested in, in meditation for a number of years, and I, can, I see that also has as much to offer. Uh, I was recently at the speaking at the Network Conference in, in Washington, D.C., and uh, we're interested in Jack Cornfield, who's a meditation teacher, and he's got an awful lot to offer, too. Sorry, I don't think my approach is the only, is the only way. My last question involves advice for me in terms of my career. <laughs> Ever since I started this podcast, I have thought that I was really just trying to recreate your career. Um, you know, you started out as a clinician. You started teaching early in your career, similar to me, and you were constantly reaching out to other clinicians and the general public through your books, through your videos, your travels, your movies, your documentaries, etc. And in reading your memoir, I even realized that you and I have a similar daily routine. You wake up, you go to your office, you respond to emails from people around the world. You probably get a thousand times more emails than I do, but it's a similar kind of thing. And, and, and then you spend time writing, whereas I spend time doing my podcast, and then you see clients. So then that's pretty much my routine as well. Right. So I'm just trying to be you, essentially. So my question is this, as someone who seeks a lot of meaning, in my life, in reaching out to the public and also being a therapist and an educator, but, but someone who, you know, it's hard to reach out to the public, you know, it's a very complicated thing. I haven't taken any classes on, on interacting with the public, and I'm guessing you never did either, because that no, might not no, even exist. No, for sure, I haven't. Yeah, so any advice as someone who lived a very successful career in that? To, to me, it just all went very naturally. I mean, I was a great a reader and interested in in the thoughts of the great writers. I was a, grew up at a time where the, there was no idea that one could possibly earn a living as, as a writer or have a career as a writer. But uh, I was um, in a culture where we wanted to become Americans and join the American culture. And almost all of my friends, my peers, who also had parents who were immigrants, thought, felt that medicine was, a, was a, a way into that because it was a a way that you could be accepted in the culture and offering something. So I went to medical school, but from day one, I wanted to be as, as a, a psychiatrist and because those were the as close as I could get to the great thinkers like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And when I went to psychiatry, I was heavily influenced by uh, interpersonalists, uh, people who were doing, starting to do group therapy that fascinated me a lot. And, and when I, I wrote a textbook on group therapy, I'm working on the sixth edition of that now, but the textbook was one of the things that made that book successful is that it gave me a little bit of an opportunity to start to tell stories. And so uh, embedded in the textbook, there are lots and lots of very short stories, paragraph or two or three paragraphs, but, but I was beginning to feel like I could teach through narrative and combining uh, my interest in, in uh, being a doctor, being a healer, but also being being a writer. So those are the two forces that have uh, attracted me all throughout my life. And I'm still writing, and I still read. I I am never not reading. I'm reading continuously, reading a novel or usually book uh, stories. Always uh, every night before I go to sleep. How have you managed to manage 
the public, you know, cause you get feedback, you, I'm guessing people ask you to do things or you get inspiration, various inspirations to do various different things. I'm just curious about how you've managed to have such a successful career in that. Well, I've, I've had the great privilege of being on the faculty at Stanford. So I've been associated there with, uh, with very good mind, very good students, but above all, uh, a head of psychiatry who, who gave me uh, a great deal of freedom to pursue whatever I wanted to pursue. So I'm very grateful uh, to Stanford for doing that. I've been just on a, a trip because of my new book, uh, and one has to, if one spends a year or two, a couple of years writing a book, one has to help it, help it swim in its early stages. So I've been speaking about the book. I, uh, I was on the East Coast just for the last few days. That doesn't get to me. I'm, I'm trying to protect my time very much. So I do relatively few, few lectures. But when I do, it's usually to help a recent book of mine swim. What inspires you to create in terms of all the options available to you? You've written novels, fiction novels, and you have limited time. And you write about that in your memoir in terms of the, the various decisions you've made. I'm just curious how you have made those decisions. How do you decide what to do? What I really want to do is to write uh, and, and, and to write in a way that will help teach students of psychotherapy. And so I, I have a, a many files where, say, there may be an interesting story in here, interesting teaching story. And I'm never happier with it when I'm actually in the process of writing. Uh, and that, at my age, is it's a little bit of a sadness now because I see that I'm not going to be writing too much more any, any longer. My writing's not as good. Uh, my walking side is good. Of course, my writing side is good. And if you look in the indexes as I have recently, you won't find many novelists who are over 80. You know, your, your memory is, is impaired. You write a novel, you've got to remember what's going on in every single one of those earlier chapters. So that's hard to do. I think I'll stick to short stories from now on. Well, I think you're an amazing writer. Your, your book, Becoming Myself, which I'm holding right here, I can't remember the last time I read a book so fast. It's easy to read, but dense. It's, it's got short chapters on various different things. And if you're a therapist or, I don't know, just interested in history to some extent, I think it's a fascinating read. Yeah, well, I, I, it was quite an experience to write it. And all the untold stories of my life that I haven't told anywhere else went into that. So it was, it was great fun to write that book. And, and I'm very pleased you, you really enjoyed the book. Yeah. So I have so many other questions to ask, but I want to be respectful of your time. So I think I'll let you go. Okay. Because I have questions about your experience with Viktor Frankl and Virginia Satir and Don Jacks. I'm a family therapist, so Mnuchin, okay. you know, in the 60s and humanistic psychotherapy. Like I, yeah. I feel like you're a, my window into that whole world. You were a part of it. You were, you were a generator of that whole movement. My first year at Stanford, I, I spent a day a week with Virginia Satir uh, at the MRI. So she was uh, teaching this course, and I thought that would be something important to learn. I, I found that very interesting. For a little while, I was saying, hmm, do I want to be going to family therapy or do I want to go into group therapy? I mean, I, I was so juggling in my mind. But all in all, I just found the group work more interesting for me. But I could have gone the other way. I found family therapy quite interesting. And she was an interesting person, somewhat like a Sherman, 
Sherman tank. You know, she kind of was tough and strong, went right over. But, but she was a great contributor to the field. Yeah. Okay, so it was great talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Young. See ya. How do you end these things? <laughs> Are we finished? Yeah. All, all right, well, if you like the book, do me a favor and consider writing a short review. I mean, even one or two lines on Amazon. Well, I'll do that now. I'm at 99, I think, now. I need one more to make 100 now. I'll be your 100th. Okay, great. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. So, thanks. Bye-bye. All right, so that was my talk with Irvin Yalom. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you think. Email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Also, let me know what you thought about what we talked about, and let me know what you thought about my questions, because uh, I'm not quite sure those are the best questions to ask. (laughs) Also, uh, if you want me to talk with other prominent figures, let me know. I have refrained from doing that up until this point for the most part, because I just thought that other podcasts do that pretty well, like uh, The Shrink Is In with Dr. Dave. Or Shrink Rap Radio, not the Shrink is in. Shrink is in is a different good podcast, but um, the uh, the Sh- Shrink Rap Radio with Doctor Dave. I, he I, every episode he interviews a prominent figure, and he so he's probably interviewed. He, Irvin Yalom has def, probably definitely been on his podcast. So I don't know. I don't know if I should be interviewing famous people uh, because I just don't know if we're really the best place to do that. But let me know if if you want me to. And, um, you know, I I might reach out to people. Also, I hope you got a sense for how I was idealizing him and how humble he was, how real he was, and how he just doesn't seem to absorb the the way people revere him. I think he, he just lives his life and and knows how to be balanced. Uh, he, he seems like a very balanced f- fella. <laughs> All right, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>